Welcome to Extension Out Loud. I'm Paul Treadwell. And I'm Katie Bailden. So for this episode, what are we doing? We are talking to eight extension specialists to get an idea of what the crop outlook is for this year. We talked to a couple of vegetable specialists, Judson Reed and Ethan Grunberg. We talked to three fruit specialists, Craig Kelke, Laura McDermott, and Mike Bastow. And we also talked to Kitty O'Neill, who is a regional field crops and soil specialist. And finally, we talked to a couple of viticulturalists, Hans Walter-Peterson and Jennifer Russo. Great. And it was a pretty wide range of conversation, although yeah. there were some similarities in the crop mm-hmm. outlook for this year. So it's really kind of interesting to hear all these guys offering up their sage advice. And yep. We talked weather, pests, and innovations. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's a good conversation. So give it a listen. I'm Hans Walter-Peterson. I'm the viticulture extension specialist in the Finger Lakes region with Cornell. Welcome, Hans. And Judson? Good morning. I'm Judson Reed, a vegetable specialist with Cornell Cooperative Extension, and I work out of beautiful Penyan, New York. <laughs> well, welcome, Judd. Hi, that's uh, Mike Bazow. I'm the tree fruit specialist with the Eastern New York Commercial Hort Program, and I'm based out of Plattsburgh, New York, in the Champlain Valley. Morning, Mike. Hi, I'm Jennifer Russo, and I'm a viticulture extension specialist for the LERGP, or Lake Erie Grape Region, and with Cornell. Good morning. I'm Kitty O'Neill, field crops and soils specialist with the North Country Regional Ag Team up in northern New York. I am Laura McDermott, and I work with Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program, which is on the eastern side of New York State. I'm a berry specialist. Well, okay. So, thank you. One more. Who did I miss? Good morning. Craig. Craig. Craig Kelsey. Um, <laughs> area Extension Specialist, Lake Ontario Fruit Program, based in Western New York with tree fruit and small fruit. Well, welcome, Craig. Thank you. Why don't we start out with how are things shaping up for crops in your particular region this year? Well, I'll start because berry season, we are thick in the middle of berry season. So um, strawberries, uh, we had a fabulous season this year. Um, at least for most growers, not, not every single one, but most growers did very well. We had no frost really. And the rains, although they really made it nerve wracking because we thought we were going to have a ton of disease problems. We actually had great size, not as many disease problems, at least for the production portion of the year as I would have anticipated. So the June bearing strawberry uh, season went quite well. The blueberries looked really good. The crop load is good, but we have a plethora of disease issues that are um, beginning. And um, I expect a similar challenge with raspberries. Uh, we also are constantly struggling struggling with a fruit fly insect uh, called spotted wing drosophila. And so that, that's something that's, you know, made things more complicated to manage berry crops. But overall, it's been a, so far, it's been a great season. So I'll jump in with vegetables. We've had a persistently wet spring and early summer, and a lot of vegetables are transplanted. And so the transplants didn't get out in the field quite as early as we would have liked them to. So that put a lot of stress on those crops, things such as tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, etc. Due to that stress, a lot of them began to fruit very early. If they're under any type of stress in their transplant trays, they'll go into a flowering stage 
And so a lot of those crops began to fruit very early. And now we see the other side of a very wet start to the season, which is that those transplanted crops become very susceptible to drought stress. And so believe it or not, we're seeing water stress as soon as we go anywhere close to a week without any rain. So it's a interesting start to the vegetable season. I would say we are one to two weeks behind where we normally would be in terms of crop canopy and, and maturity. Great. Thanks, Jed. Well, Hans, what's going on with uh, grapes and whatnot? Uh, well, the whatnots are doing just fine. But the grapes, <laughs> uh, grapes in the Finger Lakes, we've had a the beginning of the season, like other people have said, was you know wet and cool. And that really kind of got us off to a, a bit of a slow start. The kind of one of the main phenological stages that we look for in grapes every year is when bloom happens, when the flowers open up and, and the fruit starts to set. And this year that happened pretty late, up to a week later than normal. So the concern now is when we tend to have a late bloom period, we tend to also hit the ripening period and then harvest later as well. Not It's not an automatic, but it tends to happen. So we're a little bit concerned with that. And so if we have a later time when ripening starts, there's just less of a season for ripening to happen. And so if we have a large crop that can cause some problems with uh, potential ripening time and ripening ability. So it was a slow start to the season. The heat has kind of picked us up a little bit. Kind of like Laura was saying earlier, we've, we, I've been expecting to see a lot more disease problems than I've seen so far. And I think growers are being pretty aggressive about their pest management programs given the conditions. But so far, things actually look pretty, pretty good overall. Good. And Jennifer, you, you are a great person too, right? Yes, and I just need to echo what Hans said as well here in the Lake Erie region. We had a horrible year last year with diseases, so a lot of our growers have been really diligent about their programs. So, so far, fingers crossed, we've been doing really well with that. But our bloom and our fruit set was a lot later and actually longer. It took longer for it to happen. So we are in the same boat as Hans is that it's going to push everything else back. And there's a really heavy crop hanging out there this year as well. So... There's coming issues of if we can get the fruit right in time. Kitty, what's going on up in the North Country? Well, uh, right off the top, I demand equal time with three great people. So I'm the only only field craft person. I have three things to tell you about. The spring started off poorly. Early, early when things just started to green up this spring, it became very apparent that we had a lot of alfalfa and alfalfa grass damage from ice sheeting on the soil surface. Everybody calls this winter kill. There were huge areas of alfalfa and alfalfa grass fields just missing that were killed with this ice sheeting on the soil surface. So before there were even any planting considerations, that was apparent that that was something we're going to need to deal with. So there was a lot of loss of alfalfa and alfalfa grass, largely on dairy farms who we know they're already struggling with poor economic conditions um, with kind of the fifth year of low milk prices. So that was not a good way to start off in the early, early spring. We then had a really wet May, which kept people out of the fields when they would like to be fitting fields and planting corn and some of those alfalfa seeding replacements. Just couldn't get in the field. 
And that wet continued into June. Um, many parts of the North Country are several inches over normal precipitation at this point. But I, even more important than the rainfall totals is the fact that it just rained every couple of days. It rained every day or every other day. The pattern was really problematic because there was never a window of drying out where folks could get on the field to fit. That wet and that pattern of wet continued when um, it was time to take off first cutting of alfalfa and alfalfa grass. There were no opportunities until the last week or two here at the end of June, beginning of July, for making dry hay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first cutting of dry hay is very poor quality, very overmature. Many of the dairy farms that make haylage were able to get off first cutting not too, too late. Um, they rutted up their fields pretty good doing it. And then when first cutting was off for those dairies, they went back to planting corn. And there, we still have, you know, the old saying of knee high by the 4th of July is a reasonable target for corn. In a typical year, it's way past knee high in New York State. It's up to your waist or your shoulders or in a good year over your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole lot of corn that's not knee high by the 4th of July this year. In fact, I just saw a funny little picture that one of our farms up here posted on Facebook of a Barbie standing in the field um, with <laughs> corn up to her knees. <laughs> so they found a way to say, yes, it's knee high, but it's, they had to stretch it to find some, some way to spin that positively. So at this point in the season, corn is way behind. So we're setting ourselves up for potentially not reaching a good state of maturity by the end of the season, especially if we have an early frost and yields will be disappointing. And there's going to be enhanced feed costs for dairies this year because of the poor quality of forages, uh, first cutting, and and that sort of thing. So it's been a whole series of events. We set ourselves up for some pest problems and weed problems as soon as the crops are sort of off schedule. We've had a very bad infestation of um, black cutworm this spring. And some of the same fields that I saw huge swaths, acres and acres of alfalfa damage this spring. They were planted to corn, and now I see acres and acres of black cutworm damage in some of those same fields um, where the corn is just missing. So it's been kind of a a series of unfortunate events, all all additional stresses on some of the dairy farms and uh, livestock farms up here in the north and across the state. We've got Craig and Mike still to talk about tree fruit and berries. Uh, echo what everybody said. We've we had a really really wet spring, so berry crops were quite late. You know, usually you can count on Father's Day weekend having some good berries to pick, and that was not the case this year in Western New York. Uh, like Laura said, we should have more disease issues, but I haven't heard a whole lot. Uh, blueberries look okay. Uh, spotted wing Drosophila is definitely a problem because of the early emergence. Uh, apples also has. The rain has really slowed growers down. Um, they have to cover for diseases like scab and fire blight, but especially scab. Uh, as far as our crop, we look like we have a pretty decent sized crop. There are some holes in the crop. Some traditional varieties like Macintosh and Empire seem to be down overall because it was probably not great pollination conditions at that time and we didn't really get good fruit set on some varieties. Uh, but overall, we're looking pretty good. 
Timing of harvest, it's really difficult to tell. It doesn't really matter when the season starts. Weather patterns can change things as the season goes on. But generally, our early varieties go by the whims of, of climate patterns and weather patterns like the last few weeks before harvest. And the later varieties in October, they tend to more follow the calendar. So, so far, so good. Also affecting tree fruit, I guess the peach crop looks pretty good as well. We have a number of processing peaches and fresh market peaches in our area. Sweet cherries were variable. Some growers had some varieties that were on. Some had them that are pretty light. They were also late this year. Usually you have a fair number of sweet cherries from Western New York in the marketplace by the 4th of July. This year we did not have it because of the lateness. Tart cherries, still a large industry in Western New York. We're worried with spotted wing drosophila because there's emergence and sustained trap catch, which means they've, they've caught flies uh, two weeks in a row in certain locations in orchards before tart cherries are harvested. So that's a danger because loads of cherries can get rejected if they find any live larvae uh, in them. Mm. So we try to be positive. A lot of the work that we do now is, is with climate change mitigation. So we have growers that are putting up a lot of hail netting. Um, a lot of reflective fabric to capture more color on the fruit when we have cool, rainy weather. Great. And we have one left, right? Yeah, Mike, how's the uh, tree fruit doing in your area? Hey, so this is Mike, and I'm going to pretty much echo what Craig had been saying. You know, in our area, we have a particularly cold winters, too. So this year I'm seeing a couple trees that look like they might have had some winter injury, whether that's from this winter or the previous one, hard to say, but we've been seeing a little bit of that. Overall, bloom was, was pretty good this season, a bit late, like most other places. A couple varieties that were a bit lighter, our Honeycrisp were a bit light this year. And then as Craig was saying, the Macs also seem like they're going to be a little bit lighter than we had originally anticipated. The bloom looked good, but I don't think we got quite as much fruit set as we thought we were planning to. And then also with how wet and rainy it was, it was also really hard to get tractors in, getting all our spraying done. So. We haven't seen too much pop-up quite yet, but disease is certainly on everyone's mind this season. We're starting to see pockets of scab showing up in some orchards and fire blight as well. So that really seems to be our big focus for this season. Um, again, maturity-wise, hard to say what exactly that's going to look like. We'll be looking at the weather patterns as we get closer to the actual harvest date. As far as some of the other fruits go, up north, we pretty much exclusively stick to apples, but down in the Saratoga region, being a little bit more on the edge of where we can grow peaches, there wasn't too much winter injury there, so a lot of the buds made it, so there is a peach crop in our, our region this year, so a lot of growers are excited about that. When the peaches are there, it's usually a pretty good year for them. And then also with spotted wing, guys that do have cherries are certainly concerned about that as well. It really sounds like climate and the environment are the factors that are having tremendous impacts. Are there any other things we should be talking about? Any other issues they're facing? Or? This is Craig. I would say labor is, is huge. You know, there's over, new overtime laws in New York State that are going to affect all farms. And labor supply seems to get tighter and tighter. You know, folks don't want to pick fresh fruits and vegetables. And besides the immigration laws, it's just difficult to get a good, solid, steady workforce. So we're doing some training. Mario Miranda Sazona is doing some training on our team with Spanish-speaking employees, um, trying to get them to work up to middle management positions, get them to learn more about their position. 
was also trainings going on to try to teach growers how to retain good employees and to promote them. And there's a lot going on with trying to automate as much as possible with the fact that we're going to have, we know we're going to have reduced labor force uh, in the near future. No, I would echo what Craig says in the berry world, which is a much smaller component uh, as far as a commodity in New York State, but we rely very heavily on you pick. Our customers pick our fruit, but the customer base nowadays is not really interested in picking a lot of fruit, so a lot of people have had foreign labor come in, do that, but it is going to be really cost prohibitive, I think. I just have a grower that has 40 acres of blueberries that bought a self-propelled blueberry harvester because he's so concerned about it. So I just echo Craig's sentiments on the labor being a real problem. Are there any um, exciting projects that you all are working on or have heard about in terms of automation? Hi, this is Jennifer coming in from the Lake Erie Region Group Program. We are actually working with Dr. Terry Bates and also UC Davis and Carnegie Mellon and Montpelier in France on a huge federal specialty crop research initiative about doing some sensor work and variable rates out in our vineyards here. We are coming to the end of a four-year program and we have seen lots of our people, due to a lot of the labor that is going on, issues adopting a bunch of this. As a matter of fact, at the end of this season, we've had over 11,000 acres that are now going to scanning with NDVI for health of plants and then using that to direct decisions to be more efficient with their management practices. Hans, is that happening in central New York with grapes? We're definitely keeping close tabs on what they've been working on. A lot of the equipment and things that they've been using out there is not so much the NDVI sensors, but the data that they get is pretty specialized right now. So we just don't have that equipment here, but we've done some of these same scans with NDVI and soil electrical conductivity work to map soils. We've done a little bit out there in cooperation with Terry and the group out in Lake Erie. So we're not as far along in that just because we don't have the equipment out here yet, but we are definitely going to be looking at the lessons that they're learning and the technologies that they're figuring out in the systems and start to try to integrate them into some farms out here. With vegetables, Judd, are you seeing any innovations in technology or any new crops that folks are focusing on this year? Uh, the vegetables also experience the challenges that uh, the other horticultural crops do with labor. I still think we're on the left-hand side of the curve of where technology is breaking through and solving problems for people. The technologies I do see people adopting one that I work closely with would be protected agriculture or high tunnels or greenhouses. The number of operators that use protected agriculture, that number is increasing. And some of that may have to do with climate vagaries. And so by exercising some control over the crop environment, farmers can protect themselves from ups and downs or anomalous events. I see an increase there. If you're a small farmer, if you're a smaller producer, is the technology out of reach at this point? Is it affordable? Is it something only larger endeavors can engage in? It's an interesting question. One thing that we have to look at is that uh, labor is actually probably more challenging for the small to medium-sized farms than it is for the large farms. 
that can attract a larger pool and a more stable pool of workers because they're operating at a size, a critical mass, a scale that allows them to address labor issues. Those people may have a full-time HR person on their staff, whereas a small to medium farm where the owner operator is also the primary source of labor, it's more challenging for those farms to compete in that tight labor market that Craig Kauke described. So that's a bit of a, a, a funny situation. So, I mean, if the technology is such that larger farms can afford it, but larger farms can also manage their labor better, small to medium producers are really getting the short end of the stick on this, aren't they? There's a possibility. This is Craig again, uh, Western New York. A lot of the technology that we're looking at is years down the road, and we don't know if it's going to be something that farmers will adopt. And if they do, it might be one of those situations where a few farms will go in on a piece of equipment and decide if they want to take that next step. It's really too early to tell if the small and medium-sized farms are going to get squished in our region. I mean, we have multi-generations of family farms that have been growing farms for decades in, in the five counties I work with. And it's a world market. I mean, we're competing with Washington State. We're competing with the world. And labor, what varieties to plant, getting perfect fruit to market, which is a huge thing. They're all going to come into play. There's so many complex factors. I don't think we're there yet to saying, well, this technology can only be adopted by large growers who have those resources. And we really want to preserve the family farm. And that's, that's what it's all about. Are these family farms getting larger? The more progressive ones, I would probably argue yes. So to continue that discussion, this is Judd again. I think one thing we have to bear in mind is that what we consider a large farm in New York State on a national level or global level is generally not a large farm. Hmm. And that our farms here in New York do have to compete in a national or global market, as, as Craig just pointed out. So that's one thing to bear in mind. So what is considered a medium or large size farm in New York State? Uh, this is Craig and I'll speak to apples. It's one of those things like local. How do you define local? Yeah. <laughs> define it 10 miles away. Some people say it's in my state. Some people say it's in my region of the country. So like Judd was alluding to, in Washington State, when they plant orchards, they plant giant orchards. I mean, sometimes they're, the rows are a mile long and the economies of scale. We have farms at 200, 300, 400 acres might be considered a large tree fruit farm in New York, whereas you probably need to be in the thousands to be considered a large tree fruit farm in the major growing areas of Washington State. So you know, it really depends on your definition. But like was mentioned earlier, economies of scale, trying to find those sweet spots that you can manage all those things and be profitable, I think is the most important part. Not really how we define a, a farm or a medium farm or a small farm. So this is Judd again, and I'm going to jump outside of my own production area and point out a technology that I think shows where there's promise for farms of all size, and that is robotic milkers. And Kitty is welcome to disagree with me. I think it shows an example of where technology can help farms, hopefully of smaller scale. It's not entirely scale neutral. I'm not sure that any technology is truly scale neutral but a robotic milker can be installed on smaller scale dairies and provide a major labor relief for the family operating that farm. And on Harvest New York's 
Facebook page, we have a video that features a farm in the southwestern part of New York that installed a robotic milker on a 60 cow herd, and it has really done wonders for them. Now, the economics on that may not be just where we want them to be, but it's an example of where technology can be implemented on a small scale. And hopefully there'll be more examples of that in horticultural crops coming in the future. And we don't know what those are yet, if it's robotic harvesters or other pieces of technology. But I I think we need to continue to look at other fields and see where are there examples of technology fitting in at multiple scales of farming. So Kitty, any uh, robotic milkers? Yeah, this robotic milkers is something that is being implemented somewhat widely. And as Judd said, it's closer to being scale neutral than some other things might be. It's Mm -hmm. not completely uh, neutral, but it approaches that. And that is something that many farms are implementing in the north and across the state and across the northeast and across the country to deal with labor shortages and sort of um, like a lifestyle motivation, I guess. As Judd said, it often doesn't pencil out exactly financially, economically to be a cost-saving measure, but it does provide other benefits with labor and with freeing up the farmer from having to do all the milking. And so it's a life-improving investment. Mm -hmm. And so we do have those going in on some small farms even though uh, you might not expect to see them there. So that is one real big push forward in technology uh, up here in the north on dairy farms and across everywhere else. So this is a rather big question, but outside of the technology and automation conversation that we've just been having, what other efforts are you all working on with growers and producers to address some of the challenges that uh, were brought up earlier for instance, combating some of the diseases and pests or other challenges that you all mentioned. I'll just jump in quick to expand upon the climate change mitigation that we're working on. A lot of these new apple varieties, such high returns to growers if they can produce a good crop, that there's no crop insurance categories that pay them if they have loss of a crop, a partial loss of a crop due to something like hail damage. So uh, other regions around the world have used hail netting and it, they've made it affordable. So we know growers, Mike, you can feel free to chime in. I think growers in Mike Bastow's neck of the woods in the Champlain Valley had tried it first with this company called Drape Net because as the name sounds, you could just drape the net, the hail netting over the trees. You don't need any some any sort of expensive trellis structure. Mm-hmm. Mario gathered information from Mike and growers in the Champlain, brought that into a expo talk. And the next year we had a bunch of growers last year uh, try the hail netting. Now, consequently, of course, since they put in the hail netting, we didn't have any hail. <laughs> That's a good thing. But they know that it would, in the in the event of a hail event, that, that like I said, the crop insurance wouldn't pay off enough. So this this is the way folks are going. So there's some growers that are planting hundreds. There's one grower in particular in Wayne County that has about 150 acres under hail net uh, right now. So they're very serious about protecting their high value crops. So consequently, we wanted to test this out. So our pest management, our former pest management person, Tess Grasswitz, wanted to make sure that there was good spray coverage through the canopy and if there was difference in pests and disease population inside the hail netting versus outside. She, she found that there wasn't much difference as far as pest populations and you got good spray coverage. So green light there. Cool. Uh, 
Ariel on our team, the cultural practices person, was looking at does it affect, you know, shoot growth because it does cut down sunlight, cuts down UV. Uh, and does it affect return bloom? How, how good the crop is going to be the following year? And so far he's found, this is, this is a study that we're doing for the second year in a row, that it has not affected return bloom or shoot length too much. Hmm. And the fruit quality guys, so we're looking at fruit quality. So what about color? Are there differences in color? Are there differences in maturity? Uh, there's different differences in color we found from one year's of research. But last year, we had a horrible spring in which it start. excuse me, not spring, fall, in which it decided to be rainy and wet after a real hot summer, and we had really poor coloring weather. Um, so we had poor coloring fruit overall. So adding hail netting to that only made it worse. But consequently, uh, manufacturers and growers have tried in the past to account for this hail netting, the decrease in the sunlight, you can use reflective fabric. And there's different kinds. There's a company called Extende. And you can, it's either between the rows, capturing as much light as possible and bouncing it into the bottom canopy of the tree, especially that is shaded out by the hail netting, or kind of in the herbicide strip under the tree. So we did our trials last year comparing hail netting alone, hail netting plus reflective fabric, reflective fabric alone, and then a control with nothing. And actually the reflective fabric alone, we had the best fruit color uh, in a couple varieties that we tested. So growers are are more readily adopting the reflective fabric than they are the hail netting, especially if they spend a lot of time and money putting up hail netting and don't get any hail. <laughs> you know, we know we're in the, you know, we're in the, with climate change and, and weather swings at, at the whim of a hat, and we could have damaging hailstorms at any time. So the hail netting is still going up, but we're, we're testing different types of reflective fabric. And Mark Wiltberger, a business management specialist, is, is writing articles, and he's going to talk about some more next week. The, the dollar value return is significant. Uh, if, you, if you bump up your color, um, if you bump up the percent of your fruit that go to extra fancy, which is the highest returns that growers can get, it's, it could be hundreds of dollars more per bin for a grower, which could equate to thousands more dollars per acre than if they just were, went with the whims of Mother Nature. So we're excited about that. Very interesting. Anybody else got any exciting research or uh, trials going on out there? This is Laura. I just want to mention, going along with that climate change and uh, adaptation, uh, we're finishing a big SCRI grant with about five other universities in the northern part of the United States. Again, looking at protected culture, and this is all berry crops, looking at different plastics and how plastics can actually inhibit uh, fungal growth, um, retard or, you know, kind of delay the onset of some insects, they don't like to go under those tunnels, used with exclusion netting um, or with exclusion netting just by itself, um, we can control spotted wing drosophila, which is a really big deal in the berry world and the soft fruit world. So there's a lot of um, good things on the horizon and our northern neighbors in Canada have really been able to figure this out ahead of us. Um, which means that we can do it. We just have to, our scale and our willingness and perhaps some kind of incentives um, for growers might help with adoption of some of these technologies. But I think it's exciting and I do think that there's opportunity there for growers that are willing to be um, kind of the, 
you know, lead the way, lead the charge. Um, and we do have some people doing that. And I, I, I also want to go back to the guy that bought that large um, self-propelled harvester. As crazy as it sounds, and I'm still, I'm still a little bit nervous about it, I must admit, but he has a really good strategy that is going to be used to clean up his U-Pick plantings and it, that fruit is going to be kind of invested in a high-end um, beverage product and so they're you know being creative like that I think will also really help these guys stay in the game for a little bit longer. Hmm. Good and now what about grapes we haven't heard from the grapes folks for a little while I think it sounds like the next white claw uh, flavor of those blueberries out in West Eastern New York. <laughs> um, no, I, I think the, you know, one of the things that, you know, kind of is behind a lot of these different things that in with climate change, especially is, is the, the severity of weather events that are coming and kind of the, the more extreme versions of kind of what we've been used to. Uh, so, uh, I think Craig mentioned earlier, this is Hans, by the way, um, Craig mentioned earlier about, um, you know, having, having hail and, um, different times of the season and last year being incredibly wet and humid, uh, when we got towards harvest and that really threw us for a loop, um, in the grape world also caused a, a problem called sour rot to an extent we've never really seen before. Um, so if, if we're going to be dealing with more extreme weather events. Um, like last year here in, here in the Finger Lakes, we had a rainstorm uh, in the middle of August that dumped 10 inches of rain in about three hours mm -hmm. um, on a couple of towns here in the, in, along Seneca Lake uh, and Cayuga Lake. So, I mean, if, if we're going to be having more extreme events like that, we need to be looking at um, practices, technologies, things like that, that, can help us to withstand those more extreme events. And so whether it's, whether it's a better erosion controls, because a lot of our vineyards are on hillsides here in the Finger Lakes, because we take advantage of those hills for, for some different aspects of site, um, site characteristics, um, whether it's in, uh, changed or higher disease pressures or insect pressures because of, um, like I was mentioning, higher humidity levels because it's just warmer, so warm air holds more water. Um, that tends to promote disease development. Things like that um, are what we're having to look at. So we've got a couple of projects looking at this sour rot issue um, moving forward and trying to develop better controls and better understanding of what actually the factors that, that lead to just kind of a normal amount of, of this problem versus kind of an explosive ep epidemic kind of like we had last year. Thank you for listening to Extension Out Loud. Brought to you by Cornell Cooperative Extension. This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. Please give us your feedback through our listener survey and sign up for our mailing list for notifications about new episodes. Links to both of these can be found on our SoundCloud page. Or by visiting or... extensionoutloud.com. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. <laughs>